God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have to give you a consumer's warning here. Warning, this sermon changes direction. I mean, it just happened. I was putting a sermon together based on the text of Luke and a similar text in Matthew and getting into it uh, pretty heavy. And then I got to a point where I said, I'm going to go off in this direction and see what happens. And I never found my way back. <laughs> so you can decide which one you want to listen to. Well, a couple of weeks ago, and it, well, it was exactly two weeks ago, when I preached, the title of the sermon was To Be Like Jesus. And it was based on the Corinthian text from St. Paul on what are known as the love verses, Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, something like that. But you're familiar with the verses. Love is patient, love is kind, it's forgiving, it is self-control, and the list goes on. In that sermon, it really explored the tenderness of Jesus, of his love for us, of the Father's love for us, of the Holy Spirit's love for us. It emphasized that, that tenderness and, and how we can express it in a way that we think and we act and we love with the same love that God in Christ loves us. That we can love all people, believers and unbelievers, through the eye of Christ. Now today's uh, gospel, which we just read from Luke, it's known as the Sermon on the Plain because the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew was up on a mountain area. And uh, as we heard at the beginning of today's gospel, they came down to a level place. And so scholars say he was obviously on a flat land or a valley and taught the, the words he spoke there. Similar very much to what we have recorded in Matthew. But it could have been a different situation entirely. But when you take uh, Matthew and Luke together, what Jesus says, we don't see much tenderness. He's talking about the law of God and how it is perfectly to be lived. Instead of tenderness, we see the assertiveness of Jesus, speaking the truth plainly, right to the heart of us. And in general, he is saying that following him as a disciple will be a life of sacrifice and loss in this world, but of great reward in the next. And then having preached about it, he, he goes off with his disciples in his ministry, and he lives the life of sacrifice. St. Paul writes that before creation, Jesus knew that he would leave the riches and the glory of heaven, and he would become one of us. And in fact, I think he probably, in terms of social and economic class, he became lower than us because his whole mission with his disciples and the people he served was to serve them, not the, way, not the other way around. Jesus constantly reminded his disciples that this life you will lose, but a better life you will gain. Jesus said that even as you walk and talk with me and believe in me, even though you haven't seen me, that life that you will gain is being prepared for you 
even now as you live in your life of discipleship. But the sermons in Matthew and Luke, they really describe the high standard of performance that God's law expects, and we can never forget that. It's very simple. What is the standard? You must be perfect as God is perfect. And that presents a huge problem for us. To what standard of perfection are we being measured? Are we talking about a sliding scale? Are there exceptions to living a perfect life? We'd like to think so, but the answer is no. Not as far as the law of God is concerned. In the book of Ephesians, written by St. Paul in the first chapter, Paul almost ties himself knots in his description of what is God, when he describes what God is preparing for us in eternity, the life that we gain. And that's what Paul and Jesus also focus on. Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of the glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God gives faith to believe in Jesus Christ. He gives us faith to believe that Jesus died for our sins, that God raised Jesus from the dead, God adopts us as his sons and daughters. And so the life we live now, the one of sacrifice and deprivation, the one Jesus describes in his sermons on the mountain on the plain, the life that he lived perfectly, he lived perfectly for us. He died on that cross to pay the full price for all of our sin, which was demanded by the law. And God gives us faith to believe in Jesus and adopts us to live forever with himself, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was at this point in my sermon preparation where I went in a different direction. Because I noticed as I was reading in Matthew and, and accounts and leafing through these two Gospels, how often Jesus goes off to be by himself. Several times he's described as going away to pray and prays all, all night and comes back in the next day to continue his work. In fact, in Luke chapter four through chapter six, Jesus is on the move, a fast move, and it's not a fun, fun trip. He starts in Nazareth, his hometown, where his friends and neighbors tried to kill him because he asserted he is the Messiah. From his hometown, he then goes to Capernaum and Judea and, and walks along the Sea of Galilee and he's always followed by an increasing number of people who are hearing about him and what he does, heals the sick, gives hope to the poor. These people lined up outside of Peter's home where Jesus was staying and, and they came out to see Jesus even from Jerusalem to see what was going on. And like I mentioned a moment ago, on this one occasion, Jesus went into a desolate place and prayed all night and then came out in the morning to continue his work with his closest disciples. What I particularly noticed, what I thought was so interesting, and, and it was there, you know, hiding and blind in, in perfect sight, but you 
tend to miss things like that. But I noticed that Jesus had no one to go to. There was no go-to person among his disciples or the crowd that followed him who could support him, encourage him, say, pray for him, minister to him. So I was thinking about it, and, and I was thinking, well, who in the world, who spoke for Jesus in words of encouragement in his ministry? For whom did, to whom did Jesus pray? To whom was he accountable in his ministry? From whom did he receive his strength and power and motivation and his determination to continue? We may look at the life of Jesus and think, well, he is God. He's both divine and human, so what's the problem? He can do anything, but he was off doing things we would prefer him not to do. We didn't think they were that wise or understand why he did them. Like dying on a cross, like being tortured almost to death, like living at a poverty level, really, living totally dependent on the generosity of others for everything he needed. You know, even Jesus' disciples came more from more money than Jesus had. That's my thinking on it anyway. Peter at one point pointed out that he and the other disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. So they had stuff. And Jesus replied that you have to fit through the eye of a needle to meet the standards of sacrifice he's talking about. Jesus didn't have stuff. But how did Jesus live the totally sacrificial life? Who kept him going? From whom did he draw his strength, his resolve, and his determination? Well, that answer, too, is obvious. He went to God. He went to God the Father in prayer. It is in prayer where we find Jesus as his most vulnerable, the most heartfelt thoughts that have come from him and are spoken. It's in prayer where we find Jesus. And where do we find the disciples? taking a nap, especially in Gethsemane just before he, Jesus is arrested to be tried, tortured, and executed. Jesus spends hours in prayer. In our text, he prays all night and then goes to work. And although the gospel writers will indicate that Jesus went into desolate places often to spend hours in prayer, they don't record for us what he prayed about or what he said. But we do have two examples. The first is the Lord's Prayer, which he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. And then the other prayer is in John 17, where he is praying for those who will believe in him. He prays for us. The Lord's Prayer is not only the prayer we actually pray together and will this morning, but it's also the model for which we construct our own prayers as well. Jesus did give us thoughts and suggestions on how we pray. He did teach that prayer is always answered. He did teach us that we should go to quiet places to pray where we won't be disturbed in places that provide privacy. He encourages us to interrupt our busy lives to focus on spending time with God in prayer. And he promised that God always will answer our prayers. And what did Jesus pray about? Well, from Gethsemane and from John 17, he prayed about what he was about to do and what he had to do. Jesus often said that Everything he did was what God the Father told him to do, appointed him to do, and sent him to do. So likewise, what are we encouraged to ask God in prayer? We'll ask God to supply everything we need to do what God wants us to do. Did God the Father meet Jesus' needs? Yes. Does God the Father meet our needs? Yes. 
Well, then how often should we pray? When the resurrected Jesus left the disciples on the Mount of Olives and ascended into heaven, they returned to Jerusalem. And the scriptures say they stayed together in prayer, waiting for the Holy Spirit to baptize them. They stayed together in prayer for 10 days. And then throughout their ministries, the disciples now known as apostles and their followers constantly encouraged believers to pray. And so I jotted down from a concordance all the entries about prayer that relate to us as believers. Words spoken by Jesus, words spoken by the apostles and others. Jesus said, my house, I want you to hear how closely the word prayer is, invades everything we're supposed to do. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. They all join together constantly in prayer. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world. I pray for those who will believe in me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. God has heard your prayer. Be patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Our prayer is for your perfection. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more. But in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. The apostle says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. The ministry of the apostles, he described as being consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are, are attentive to his prayer. To summarize, how often should we pray and for whom? We should pray, be praying all the time for everyone, for everything. Just wrap everything up in prayer that we do and give it to God. Because as David encourages us in his psalm, cast your cares on the Lord for he will sustain you. He never lets the righteous fall. Well, there's some practical access to prayer. Like when can you pray? When's a good time to pray? Well, there's running, when you're running, when you're walking. You can pray for your spouse, for your family, for friends. You can pray for rich people, for poor people. As you walk down the street, you can say little prayers for the people you pass that you don't even know. Certainly, it's a good idea to pray when you're angry. I had the experience this past week with a, with a patient who was so angry because he was going to die, but he wasn't angry at his disease or anything. He was angry at the virus, but it had nothing to do with him. And we try to change the subject. We have him lead us in prayer. And you say a beautiful prayer to get right back on his anger train. Pray when you're angry. Let God divert the hurt that is inflicting your life to lead you in anger. You can tell people that you are praying for them. Just a little note to know. Isn't it amazing how close we live to the Lord? Jesus said, the Father and he, the Son, come and make their home with us. The Holy Spirit fills our lives. And the three of them invite us to talk with them. And we have the assurances from the Lord that everything we offer to the Lord is offered to him according to his will. There's no problem. You can't say a bad prayer at all. Another aspect of prayer is keeping a schedule. Well, you know what schedules are. They're, they're, we invent them so we can change them. Routines can end up being so 
just schedules to be changed one thing after another. And it can be a challenge to pray according to a schedule. But you know what? Sometimes those interruptions may re result in the appropriate prayer that the Lord wants you to make. I often end up providing prayer for people who would otherwise be missed because the ones I'm scheduled to see aren't available for any number of reasons. The most important thing, I think, is be prepared to pray. And by that, I mean have a scripture on your mind, a go-to scripture, that through the day in your activities, no matter what you're doing, it just comes back and refreshes your heart, refreshes your mind, refreshes your faith. It could be the simple one that David wrote, cast your cares on the Lord, for he will sustain you. That is a go-to verse. Or you can use the church directory, and using that, select some names or pray for all of them that are listed there. You may not even know these, all these folks, but certainly you can pray for them. There is a new resource that came out just in time for this sermon, and I thank you, the Lutheran Witness, for doing this. But in their most recent issue, February, they have a one-page little Bible study on Ephesians chapter 1 that I mentioned earlier called Unceasing Prayer. It examines all of Paul's encouragements to us to praise the Lord and live with him in a life of prayer. Well, you can talk about prayer forever. There are a lot of books and there are a lot of workshops and all sorts of ways to organize your life around prayer, but that's not praying. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of faith that opens the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus, to see him more clearly in your word and in our lives. We worship you and praise you. We glorify your name. And we pray these words in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, enrich your lives and heart. Amen.